All right, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21 again tonight. Revelation chapter 21. So basically the thousand year millennial reign has come to an end with um, Satan trying to mount one more final rebellion against God and his people. He ends up being... Um, that rebellion is extinguished as fast as, um, as it begins. And then we move into the great white throne judgment where all of the unbelievers and all evil finds its place in the lake of fire. And then in chapter 21, this is what comes next. He says in verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And so one of the first things that I saw in this whenever we begin to outline it is that the very first five verses, I believe it is, are focused on this new city, this new heaven and this new earth. And so I labeled this the city of God and we covered that last week. But one of the things that we look for is the, the way that John wants to describe this city to us because that's what he's trying to do. He's seeing these visions and he wants all of the servants of God to be able to see what he sees and to know what he knows now. And so he's writing it down so that you and I will know the things that must take place soon. Again, that's what we read in Revelation chapter 1. That's his purpose for writing it. So one of the first things that you see about this, um, about this heaven and this city of God is what? What's the first way it's described in verse 1? It's new. It's new. Uh, this is, and notice what does it say about the first heaven and the first earth? What happened to it? So here's the thing that he wants you to understand. This new heaven and this new earth is not even comparable to the old heaven and the old earth which is passed away. That's former things. That's things under a curse. With this one, there is no curse. This is completely new, unadulterated, with nothing but the glory of God that lies within it. And so this is the first thing that he wants us to understand. This is new. You've never seen anything like it because the old has passed away. And then, of course, we looked at what the possibility of the next part that says the sea was no more. And we looked at several things in there. And we just basically decided that simply it just means that there's not going to be any more separation between uh, mankind whatsoever. There's not going to be any dangers or any t uh, perils or as we read in the Old Testament of Isaiah um, or was it um, maybe it wasn't Isaiah but we picked up a scripture last week that talked about the sea in the Old Testament and it said that the sea was always stirring up mire and muck and so it was known as a place of turmoil and trouble and so there are many different ways to, that 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 this might be interpreted, but no matter which way you interpret this, as we looked at last week, every one of them are true about this new heaven and new earth. And so um, whichever way you go with this, it still represents the fact that there is no danger, no trouble, no separation, no evil, no muck, no mire. There is nothing here that is going to cause trouble in any way. And then in verse 2, he says, And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So he sees a new heaven and a new earth, and then he sees the actual dwelling place of God. Now remember, in 
Jerusalem where we have now, there was a temple there, and this was where God dwelt at this place. And so basically if the people wanted to worship God, that's where they came to. If they wanted to, uh, to sing to God and be in the presence of God, this is where they came to. So in a similar way, now we know that God is everywhere in this new heaven and earth, but in some way, shape, or form, what we see in this is that God is literally going to be, he, He's going to have His dwelling place among men, I think is the main thing, the main point that is trying to get across here. The dwelling place of God is going to be among men. And then you could go on and, and what's the next thing you learn about this uh, new heaven and earth, this new Jerusalem that comes down? Alright, well, start, you're, you're right, but start in verse 2 at the end of it. How does he describe it to you? He wants you to see that, so what is, how, why does John use this um, metaphor, I guess you could say? Why does he use this metaphor to help describe to you what this city, this new heaven and this new earth looks like? What's he trying to say here? That's right. What did you say, Tammy? That's right. And so whenever he uses this expression where he says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. How is a bride adorned for her husband? She is the best for as far as we know, as far as looks, she is likely the best that she is ever going to look. I, don't, I shouldn't have said that, but my wife is not here, and so I can say whatever I want to. But... There you go. <laughs> this is, for the most part, one of the one of the most beautiful days of her life, right? And so that's the point that he's trying to make is when he looks at this city, I believe what he's trying to help us understand is you've never seen a more beautiful city in all of your life. And again, can you imagine John trying to explain to us what he's seeing? when we've never seen anything like this before, because all we know is the former, all we know is the old, and now John looks and all he sees is completely new. And the best way he knows how to describe it is it's like looking at a bride that has been adorned for her husband. This city is beautiful. This city is magnificent. This city is stunning. And then he goes on in verse 3, he describes it a little bit more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. So again, as we said in verse 2, um, verse two again, the city is coming down. Um, it is the dwelling place of God that is coming to be with man. And we've never experienced that because there's always been this disconnect between us and God, right? And let's just face it, even with the Holy Spirit, as close as we can feel to God. Do you understand that there is still... Do you ever feel at times that, God, where are you? Be honest with yourself and be honest with me. There are so many times that we think, God, where are you? Or maybe even you've went as far as to say, God, are you even real? Because He seems that far away many times in our life. And what we have to see here is that this is where God literally dwells with us. He walks with us. He talks with us, just like He did with Adam in the Garden of Eden. And so the dwelling place of God is with man. And then notice He says, He will dwell with them. This is an amazing thing to think about when John explains it to you. 
He's going to dwell with man. That's unimaginable. And then it says, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. And so think about this city that John is trying to describe to you. It's new. Nothing like anything you're used to. No more trouble. No more muck and mire. No more separation of people. No more, um, no more being distant from God, but God dwells with you. It's a city that's, that's like a bride that's been adorned for her husband. You've never seen anything as beautiful as this. And then God dwells with man and He walks with them and He talks with them and then they are His people and He Himself will be with them as their God. So we've never seen anything like this. Now He goes to explain in a little bit more detail what He means when He says this is new, number one. What He means when He says there's no more sea and there's no more muck and mire and darkness. What He means that God dwells with His people. How do we tie all that together? Well, here's the summary of it in verse 4. Because all those things are true, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now I heard, I don't remember who it was, it may have been MacArthur or it was somebody I was listening to that said that this does not mean that God is following people around with a handkerchief as they cry and He's soaking up all their tears as He goes through here. The point that He's making is that there are no tears. There is nothing There is nothing that will bring tears in this place anymore. Every tear is going to be gone, and we're going to see why. Death shall be no more in verse 4. Neither shall there be mourning. So in other words, there's not going to be tears. Neither is there going to be mourning. Neither is there going to be crying. Neither is there going to be pain anymore. And why? The former things have passed away. So again, the point that John is trying to make in this first section of chapter 21 is, I saw the city of God. Let me tell you what it looked like. Let me tell you what I saw. Let me explain it to you as best as I can so that you can just catch a glimpse of what we have to look forward to. And the point being, it is completely new and everything that was former, death, dying, murk, mire, sickness, pain, mourning, crying, all of those things, that's former, right? It's gone. It's no more. It's passed away. And then he goes on and he says in verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. So why are the former things passed away? Because He's making everything new. Now when He says all things, does He leave anything out there? No. Everything is being made new. You remember in Romans chapter 8 where we looked at that and the Bible told us, uh, the Apostle Paul told us there that the creation itself is eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. Why? Because the creation itself will be made new when you and I are made new. And so... At the same time, we're all going to be made completely new. And then he says in verse 5, Also he said to me, write this down, <laughs> for these words are trustworthy and true. Uh, I, I love that right there because you can't help but think that um, John had quit writing at this point. 
He's looking at everything he saw, and, and God says, <clears throat> excuse me, you're supposed to be writing. Write this down, because these words are trustworthy and true. And then in verse 6, in verse 6, we're going to move to the people of God. This is where we get to see what the people of this city are like. Who, who gets to be a part of this city? That's a good question, right? Because I want to be a part of it. Do you want to be a part of it? So who gets to be a part of this city? Well, look at verse 6. And he said to me, it is done. In other words, making all things new. The only other time this is said in the book of Revelation is whenever he, the wrath had finally ended. All of judgment was finished. He said, it is done. There will be no more delay. And now, when he makes all things new, he says, it is done. Um, and then he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So, what's he saying here? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yep, he started, he finished it. Hold your place here and go with me to Colossians chapter 1. I think it's verse 17. Sorry, it's verse um, Colossians chapter one, verse verse sixteen through seventeen. I think is what I'm looking for. <clears throat> Colossians chapter one, verse sixteen through seventeen. And notice what he says about Jesus here. And he's talking about his supreme authority, his, um, him being uh, the creator of all things. But he says here in verse 16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Did you catch that? So again, I think all He's doing is making the point here that He is the beginning because He created all things. And then He is before all things. So He was before creation. And then in Him all things hold together. And so that means He's the one that sustains everything, right? And then He's also the one that if it end, when it ends, He'll be the one that ends the things that end. So again, I think all He's doing here in Revelation chapter, chapter 21 verse 6 is He's pointing out the fact that He is the beginning of all things and He is the end of all things and He is the one that holds all things together. He's the sustain. He's the giver of life, He's the sustainer of life, and He's the ender of life, if, that, if that's what He so chooses to do. But then notice what He says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Well, what authority and who is He to give the spring of the water of life without payment? 
All right, it's already been paid, but again, this just ties back to who he introduced himself as. You see what I'm saying? That's right. He is the beginning. Of, he's the one that creates the spring of life. He's the one from which the spring of life comes. And so because he is the Alpha and Omega, because he is the beginning and the end, to the thirsty, I will give the, pay, the spring, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. So my first question would be this, because we're talking about who gets to have this life that is part of this great city, this new creation. Who gets to have it? What's the first qualification that you've got to be to get this? In verse 6. Okay, so that's what you mean when you say thirsty. That's what you believe he means to be thirsty. All right, and I don't disagree with you at all. Anybody else? So uh, the point that I'm trying to make is this. He tells us that in order for a person to get this water of life, to get this city, you have to be thirsty. So there would be a good reason for us to try to examine what it means to be thirsty, right? Well, the first thing that I would look at when I would see this is, do you thirst for a new heaven and a new earth where the former things are no more? Or are you completely satisfied with this old cursed world the way that it is? Because there are a lot of people in this life that they're not thirsting for anything new. They're not looking for anything that, that, that um, is being described in these... Pre- they're not thirsty for those things. But instead, they're just living their life. And you think about it. Think about Lot's wife. You remember the story of that, right? What was the problem with Lot's wife? She was satisfied with this back here, right? She wanted this back here. She didn't want to lose this back here. This was everything she wanted. She wasn't thirsty for for the things that God had promised. The thing we have to look at here is that I believe to be thirsty is exactly like Bobby said. It's the thirst after Jesus Christ. But the reason you thirst after Him is because you know the promise that God has made. And the only way we're going to escape this and get to this is through Him. And that's what it means to be thirsty. Let's look at some more context of this because I believe this is where John is coming from. Isaiah chapter 50. There you go. Isaiah chapter 55, 1. And I would like for you to um, have a little bit of context of how we get to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 53 is about the Jews finally recognizing Jesus as their Savior, right? Now, they've not bore fruit. They've not produced children for their husband, for God Almighty. And so when we get to Isaiah chapter 54, notice what he says to them in 54.1. He says, Sing, O barren one. And who's the barren one? The Jewish people, right? They didn't bear for it. And that's what Isaiah is about. We're studying that on Sunday mornings. All right? But... Here we have the Israel, the people of Israel, and He has told them in Isaiah 53, there's going to come a day when you're going to recognize your Savior. And so He says to them in Isaiah 54, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one, again, we're talking about the one that's been forsaken, Israel, because God for a time has abandoned them. 
And then he says here, Seeing, O desolate one, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. Enlarge the place of your tent. Let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. And then if you were to go on down to verse um, verse 1 of 55, He gives them an invitation of how they're going to get here. How are you going to get here? Well, notice what He says to them in chapter 55. Come, everyone who what? Thirst. So think about what He's doing here. Isaiah is laying out for them, this is what your future can look like. This is what God is going to do for you. There's going to come a day that the kingdom of, of God and the, the, peop, the Jewish people are going to expand and they're going to explode. And so by the time he gets to the end of chapter 54, what do you think these people are saying? How do we get there? How do we get there? Because everything else has been about they're fixing to go into exile. And so they want to know, okay, how do we get to this kingdom? How do we get to what you're talking about here? And God says, well, let me tell you how. Let me give you an invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts. So in other words, if you thirst for what I'm talking about, when I make you a promise and when I tell you something, there ought to be something that wells up inside of you that says, I want that. I know what this world is. I know what my sin has brought me. I know where, where I am and I know what I can expect in this place. I don't want that. I'm thirsting for something else. I want, I want this that God is promising right here. And notice what it takes to get it in verse, in verse 1. Come everyone who thirsts and come to the waters. He who has no money. So first thing is, you don't need no money to get this water, right? Come, buy, and eat. But notice, you don't need no money. You don't but it's got to be bought, right? And so, who bought it? Jesus bought it, but now you get to come with no money and you get to drink of the water that He is offering right here freely to all who just simply thirst. So again, I'm trying not to get too far away from my point so that you can follow me. I'm asking the question, who are the people that get to inherit this city? Who are the people that get to have this place? And the answer is the thirsty. The ones that don't have any money, but they're being invited to come and buy. They're being invited to come and eat. And notice what he says next. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It doesn't cost you anything. It costs him everything, but it costs you nothing. All you do is be thirsty for it and come and buy it. And then he asks a question in verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? You're trying, you're, you're spending all your money and you're, you're spending all your life for something that will never fill you up. It's not even true bread. And how many of you know that in this world that the more you work and the more you obtain and the more you do, you will never be satisfied. Think about that last new car you bought. You bought one lately. How long did it take before it wasn't new anymore? But when you first got that thing, it satisfied for a little while, didn't it? 
just for a moment. And then it wasn't long that um, this thing's a piece of junk, ain't it? And so, you know, I don't care what you have. It doesn't, it never satisfies in this life. You always want more and it's never enough. And so he just asked the question to the Jews here and to us. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? And then he says, here's the next thing you've got to do. So first you've got to be thirsty. The second thing you've got to do is what? In chapter 2, I mean in verse 2 of chapter 55. Listen. Listen diligently to me. Listen to the Word of God. He gives you instruction of how to buy this bread without money, without price. He tells you exactly what you need to do, but you've got to listen, right? And then notice what he says next. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. Quit trying to attain the things that don't satisfy and things that are not bread and start eating what is good. And then notice what he says next. And delight yourselves in rich food. Delight yourself in rich food. And now what's the next thing you do in verse 3? Incline in what? Incline your ear to me and come to me. In other words, bend your ear to me and come to me, is what God says. And then He says, Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. And then it starts talking about David from, from there on. And we could go on down through there and you could see the point that Isaiah is trying to make in this. But going back to Revelation chapter 21, I believe that this is what God is taking John to go back to. He's taking him back to the same invitation that he gave the Jewish people in Isaiah chapter 55. And he's saying the same thing to all of us that read the book of Revelation today. And so he says to them, To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Same thing. Here's the invitation that's made. If you're thirsty for these things of God, if you recognize that this is not what I desire, this is not going to satisfy This is not true bread. This is not rich food. He says, bend your ear to me. Listen to me diligently and come. And I will give you, if you're thirsty, this water, that the spring of life, and it ultimately leads to this city that I'm talking about right here. And we know, as again Bobby said, this is about the gospel. This is about believing, hearing the Word of God and believing the gospel. And then notice what he says in verse 7, because here's the second quality of these people that that get to inherit this kingdom. Or you tell me, what's the second quality of these people that get to inherit this kingdom? Huh? They don't quit. They conquer. They conquer. Can anybody think of a reference scripture of what what it means for us to conquer? Does that mean that we work so hard that we never sin again, and that we become perfect in and of ourselves. Is that what it means to conquer? So what does it mean to conquer? Where else have we seen something like this at? And actually, i got to find it myself, because I don't remember where it's at. Um, no, it's in Revelation. It says, um, 
uh, what does two seven say? That's not what I'm looking for. I'm thinking about the scripture that says uh, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb, our faith. Hang on. I should have had this wrote down. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Ah. <laughs> <clears throat> All right. So Revelation chapter 12, verse 11. Look what it means to conquer. And they have conquered him, talking about Satan here, by the blood of the Lamb. That's the first way we've conquered him. So in other words, the ultimate way we've conquered him is simply because the blood of the Lamb has covered all of our sins, right? And so notice back in verse 10 of that same chapter. Notice the very last part of that verse. What is Satan doing to us? He accuses us day and night before God, right? He comes to God just like he did with Job. He comes to God and he says, Listen, the only reason Jacob follows you is because of this and this and this. And if you were to do this to him, then he wouldn't do this. Or he would curse you to your faith. He's always accusing us. And so, how do we overcome that? He says the way we overcome it is by the blood of the Lamb. Because when Satan comes before him and Jacob is covered by the blood of the Lamb, is it true that Jacob may actually curse him? Yeah. So Jacob doesn't overcome him by not doing what Satan says he would do. Jacob overcomes him by the blood of the Lamb. God simply says it's covered by the blood. It's already paid for. You can bring whatever accusation against him you want that He has conquered, not because of what He's done, but because of the blood and what the blood has done. Does that make sense? Alright, now keep going with me to the next part. And by the word of their testimony. The word of their testimony. What does that mean? Give me your best guess. What do you think? There you go. They confess that they... Their faith in this blood, right? Their faith that this blood has covered my sins. It, it would be kind of like the testimony of the Israelites in Egypt whenever they took the blood of the lamb and they wiped it over the doorpost. Now let's just be honest. If you're in Egypt and you've seen all the things that have taken place, all of the plagues and everything that has happened, and then Moses comes to you and says, i tell you how we're going to escape the, the death angel that's going to come through tonight. Kill a lamb and wipe a little blood over your doorpost. Does that sound like a legitimate way to deal with that kind of problem? Not to me. Now, in today's standard, because we know the stories, yeah. But to me, when I'm looking at that, I'm going, okay, this don't make no sense, but if this is what God said do, guess what? I'll do it. Most of the time, that's the way we, we work. 
But I, I really believe that what he's talking about here is the word of their testimony is the fact that they, that they believed wholeheartedly that the blood indeed was the payment for all of their sin and that this was how they conquered, was through this blood. And then finally he says, For they loved not their lives even unto death. And so, again, I think that when we go back to Revelation chapter 21, we are talking, as Melinda said, the next, quali- the next qualification of the people that get to inherit this city are people that they did not quit. They kept, and again, I'm not saying they'd never sinned again, but they kept trusting. They kept believing that the blood of Jesus Christ has paid for all of my sins, past, present, and future. And the word of their testimony in that blood of the Lamb, that is how they conquered. And that is how the ones that, notice he says in verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. What heritage? Well, he'll get to drink from the spring of the water of life without payment. He will get to have the new heaven and the new earth where the former things are passed away. He'll get to have the place where there is no more separation and muck and mire. He'll get to have the place to where there is no more death and no more tears and no more mourning and no more crying and no more sorrow, no more pain. These are the people that get to inherit that. They're thirsty. If you ain't thirsty for this, you might ought to take another look at things. And then, if you ain't holding to the word of your testimony and the blood of the Lamb, you ain't conquering. If you're trying your hardest to get there on your own and you're doing everything you can and you're you're working and working and working, you're not going to conquer that way. That ain't the way we conquer. But if you're thirsty and you conquer by the blood of the Lamb, this is your heritage. Does that make sense? All right. Now, notice what it says next in verse... um, Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. So does that mean that God is going to be everybody's God and and everybody is going to be God's daughter or God's son? No. Again, we're talking about a specific group of people. The ones who are not thirsty for this, they're not going to, this is not going to be their heritage he is not going to be their God and they are not going to be His child. You remember, and a lot of people want to say to you today, well, everybody's God's children. No, they're not. You remember what Jesus told the Pharisees when He was talking to them? <laughs> That's exactly what He said. He said, God is not your father. Your father is Satan. Because you are a murderer and he was a murderer from the beginning. You are a liar and he was a liar from the beginning. So again, If you want God to be your God and you want this to be your heritage, there are some qualifications you have to meet. You have to have a thirst about you for the promises of God. And the only way you have a thirst for the promises of God is if you have experienced the curse of this world. The more of that you experience, the more thirst you have for the next world. You understand that? Right, right. I think a lot of it takes place at the same time there. Yeah. So these are the people that are going to get to inherit this city of God that is so beautiful that you've never seen anything like it before. It's new. 
Um, there is the, it's nothing like the former. And then notice next in verse 8, if I'm outlining this, I'm outlining this part, the people outside of this city. So the people who are not thirsty. The people who are not. And actually you could also look at these characteristics of these people and say the opposite is true for those who are thirsty. Right? Because we're going to see that these are the people that don't get to inherit it. So the opposite of their characteristics will also be true for people who get to inherit it. So let's see what it is in verse 8. But as for the cowardly, so the first thing is they were cowards. The ones that were not thirsty, the ones that didn't conquer, it's because they were cowards. And then they were faithless. They didn't believe. They, they didn't trust God. They didn't believe this. And then it says they are detestable. <laughs> they are the detestable. They are murderers. And how many of you know that there are going to be people who were former murderers that are in heaven? What about the Apostle Paul? Was he a former murderer? What about Moses? Was he a former murderer? What about David? Was he a former murderer? I just named three of the tops, right? And yet you better believe they're in heaven. And so I'm not saying here that to be thirsty that you could never have committed any of these things, that there's never been a time in your life when you were a coward. There's never been a time in your life that you were faith, faithless. There's never been a time in your life that you were detestable. Because all of these things are true for all of us. The difference is this. Paul would say, and some of you were the same way, but you've been washed by the blood of Jesus. You have now turned toward God instead of turning away from God. And so he says here that these people are still murderers. They are still cowardly. They are still faithless and detestable. They are still sexually immoral. They are still sorcerers. And again, the reason why I like to stop and point this out when I get to the word sorcerers, I do this often because I think it's so important for today's time. One of the things that took place in this, um, in this culture is that religion a lot of times, the way that you were to get close to a particular god, a false god especially, they would give you a sedative of some kind and you had to drink this sedative, and it put you in these um, hallucinogenic states so that you were seeing things. And, um, and so whenever you get to this word sorcery in the Bible, a lot of people always think it's talking about abracadabra, zebra zoo. That's not what it's talking about. If you go and look up the original Greek word, do you know what this word actually is? Pharmacia. Pharmacia. What does a pharmacy do? The point being is that he's talking about people that, that um, give things in order to put them in a different state of mind. And how many of you know that we have a big problem with sorcery today? A major issue. So what we're seeing here is that these are people that have been have been delivered from that by the blood of the Lamb. They're not continuing in these things. now. So. That's important, I believe, to, to distinguish today, to understand what he means when he says sorceries in this right here. And then we go on to the next part, idolaters. And again, sorcery and idolaters were connected here because 
the way that, uh, for instance, there was a temple. Um, what city was that in? Esclapian Temple. I can't remember. I can't remember exactly where it was. But um, in this temple, in order for you to be able to get into this temple, you first off had to drink this sedative. The temple was a place of healing. It was the hospital, if you will. It is still the same thing. Have you ever noticed the medical symbol that we have today that has the staff and what's on the staff? The snake, all right? And I don't remember, I think that's called the seal of Asclepian or something like that, if I remember right. But it goes back to this Greek hospital that basically you would drink this sedative and you would come into this temple. And so ultimately, you would come in and spend the night in this temple with this sedative. And you would dream dreams in this place that night. And then they would have snakes in, on the floor there. And ultimately, they believed that if a snake crawled over you, this was the god Esclapian that was bringing healing to you. And so if a snake crawled over you during the night, it was a sign to you that the god Esclapian was going to, was going to heal you of your sickness. And matter of fact, before you went in, there was a sign above the door that's still in that city today that says, death is not permitted here. And so really, the only way you were going to get into this temple is if they knew that you weren't going to die to begin with. But this is, this is what they did in this place, was the god of Asclepian was worshipped for healing, and they drank this sedative as a way to hear from him and to communicate with him. And they would go in, they would lay on this floor, and they would wait for him to speak and to respond through things like this. And so while we don't have a lot of that same thing today, we still have sorceries, and we still have idolatry in many different ways. And so it still applies to us today, but in the context that John was writing in, I believe he was referring to those type of instances that were very common in their culture. So sorcerers, idolaters are, in, are, are, are not in the city. All liars are not in the city. But their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And so here we see that you're either thirsty for the things of God. You're bending your ear and you're listening to God. You're coming to God right? You're, you're coming and you're buying without money what He is offering you, alright? And you're either doing that or you are still continuing in all of these other qualities of being a coward, being faithful, faithless, being um, mixed up in uh, sorceries and idolatry and sexual immorality and lying and murders, and you're still... You're still living in all of that, and that is the practice of your lifestyle. The one gets to inherit the city of God that no former things are. There is no crying, no sorrow, no tears, no pain, no death. Um, it is completely new, and you've never seen anything as beautiful as this place. And God Himself dwells there and He is your God, and you are His people, or you are not thirsty, you don't conquer by the blood of the Lamb, and you are still a coward, 
practicing all of those or, or practicing lifestyles that are not coming toward God, not following God, not listening to His Word. And if that's the case, then you are going to inherit not the city of God, but you're going to inherit the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And this is the second death. Now here is the bad news about the second death. The second death is a dying that never ends. See, at least with the first death, it comes to an end. The first death is only for a moment. The second death is a death to where you never stop dying. Now, I want you to understand something. There are two resurrections, right, as far as what we've seen in the book of Revelation. The first resurrection are all those that are resurrected unto life. The second resurrection are all those that are resurrected unto eternal death. Everyone receives a new body. A new body. Even the ones that are inheriting eternal death get a new body. The first resurrection gets a new body that is fitted for all the things that never has pain, that never has sorrow, that never has mourning, that never has death, that, that, that can enjoy all the things of God. The others inherit a body that is capable of always dying, but never able to completely die. That's exactly right. Never be consumed. And this is the reason why Jesus said in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of what? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is the place where the thirst is never quenched. It is the place where the fire is never quenched. And so when I look at this chapter right here, I see two things for us tonight. You are either going to be in the first group of people or the second group of people, there is no middle ground. You are going to be one or the other. And the only thing that truly separates the one from the other is a thirst for the things of God and conquering by the blood of the Lamb. That's it. Because every single one of us were at one time, and still are from time to time, cowards, sexually immoral, um, murderers, liars, sorcery, idolaters, you name it, we fall in those categories somewhere. The only thing that separates us is that we thirst, we recognize those things, we know what it brings, we know the kind of world that that has brought us into. I don't want those things anymore. That's right. God, I want your things. I'm inclining my ear to you. I'm, I'm not laboring for that which is not bread anymore. I'm not trying to be satisfied from that which is never satisfying. I'm eating. I'm learning to eat good food. I'm learning to, to be satisfied with the rich things of, of, of life. I'm learning to incline my ear to God. I'm learning to listen to Him. I'm learning to come to Him. I'm learning to follow Him. And that is the only thing that separates me from all the rest of these people that are going to spend an eternity dying and they're never able to die. 
So that's our application, or the one I come up with. What do you see in this? Is there any other applications that we can pull out of this? Is there a prayer to pray? What do you mean? Yeah? Right? So again, I'm trying to teach you, um, and that's good, I'm, um, that's exactly right, good application. Um, one of the things that I use to find an application is questions to ask. Like I've asked you, is there, is there an example to follow? Amen. Is there a sin to avoid? Do what? Amen. All right. Right. So there's a prayer to pray, right? I like that. Because again, that's what I'm trying to teach you is that when we leave the Word of God, you're never finished until you have found a way to apply it to your life. Just because we walk away from this tonight and go, okay, I, I get that. That makes sense. That don't do anything until you say, here's how it applies to me. Here's what I can do with it. And so I like that. There's a prayer to pray. There's a prayer to pray right there. All right? Anybody else? Is there a promise to claim? Where's the promise to claim? To the thirsty, I will give. From the spring of life, the one who conquers, this will be his heritage. I will be his God. He will be my people. I will be his father. He will be my son. There's a lot of promises to claim right there, right? And the only ones that don't claim that are the faithless. Because how many of us are tempted to go, I don't, I don't deserve that. You're right. I, I, me too. But the good news is this. That's not what he said. He said to the thirsty, to the one who conquers by, by the blood of the Lamb, I will do this. I'm the Alpha. I'm the Omega. I'm the beginning. I'm the end. Therefore, to the one who meets these characteristics, I will do this for him. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. 